You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a paper from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. This online workshop re-examined ancient perceptions of nature, power and power over nature to better understand our current environmental crisis. The workshop, which was organised by Matthew Mandich and Giacomo Savani, took place on the 26th of February 2021. This episode features a presentation by artist Patty Baker entitled Roman Floral Design, the Embodiment of Environmental Ephemerality. A video of this presentation, including the slides used by the speaker, is available on the UCD Humanities Institute's YouTube channel. A great pleasure to introduce um, Patty. Um, uh, Patty is an affiliated scholar at the Department of History at Virginia Tech um, and formerly uh, senior lecturer and head of department at the Department of Classical and Archaeological Studies at the University of Kent. Um, uh, academic research focuses on ancient health and well-being, particularly landscapes, uh, gardens, particularly the idea of gardens as healthful spaces. Um, she's currently developing her own online business uh, called Pax in Natura. Have a look at her wonderful website. I've been looking at this recently with much pleasure. Um, the, the, we'll maybe see this in Patty's presentation. The, the, the address is Pax in Pax in Nature one word dot com. Um, that's a public outreach forum that teaches Greco-Roman history and historically inspired crafting, floral design, and gardening. So, Patty, all yours. So the whole point of this is just Roman floral design, the embodiment of environmental friendly um, environmental ephemerality. Um, just uh, just already given a background to my academic work, so I won't go into that. But I will also say that I trained as a florist as an undergraduate. So this is where I combined the, the two. When I was an undergraduate, I did holiday works, floral design, and they trained me. And while there, and I still work as a florist during holidays, so these are images from the recent work on Valentine's Day. It's a wonderful, it's a very nice creative business to work in but it is extremely, it's not environmentally friendly at all. It has large carbon footprint, floral farms are polluting. They're not beneficial for a lot of people who work in floral farms in third world countries, you know, in, in less, um, less financed countries. The floral sundries that we use are plastic based and they leave microplastics in the water. So all of this, although it's very much fun to work in, it's um, not friendly at all, but these are just some of the things, and you can see the amounts of floral, arrangements we make throughout the you know holiday seasons roses you'll get roses that come in from Kenya to the United States so roses probably travel further than some of the recipients of these roses so just to let you know also the floral designers I work for do large um, bouquets for hotels so again these go out every week um, and everything I'm showing are things I made um, but uh, two years ago, um, thanks to Giacomo, who invited me to um, give a talk on sensory studies because I was looking at sense and space and, and landscapes. Um, the talk was um, sensory studies and to give a small presentation and like something uh, more hands-on. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? And then I realized, well, Roman flower crowns are ubiquitous I'll, and they have, they're sensory. 
So I'll see if I can figure out how to make them. And this was the introduction into all of my recent work. Um, the Roman flower, just to show you, we have these, these, they're ubiquitous in Roman paintings as are garlands. There's flowers everywhere. And the more I look, the more I see the crowns and the garlands and the wreath. And as I was trying to figure out, well, how did they make them? Of course, I went straight to the ancient sources, Pliny the Elders and Natural History 21 and 25 give a lot of information on crowns, as does Alice Gallius's Attic Nights. I won't go through, but they just talked about the different types of crowns. But in the end, they say, nobody has, however, followed up. This is Pliny. Nobody has, however, followed up on the subject of flowers fully, uh, so far as I can discover. Nor shall I now, of course, put chaplets together. Basically, what he's saying is I'm not going to describe how to make them. <laughs> but that's, uh, it's too trifling. But I'll tell you about the different kinds, which for me, an archaeologist and a historian was quite frustrating because um, I'd like to know the exact techniques they were using. And so I had to go um, try to figure this out. And some of the words they use tend to suggest woven, like nexilis. Um, and we see this, it's sort of described in the Quran of Plectilis. Um, and then there's another one where they talk about um, sewing flowers together. But most of the Latin seems to suggest that they were woven. But again, it's, it's not always clear. And often they don't describe it anyway. They'll just say corona, for, which is Latin for crown. Um, so then I looked at the archaeological evidence for this first paper. And there are actually about five or six images of cupids. Um, and here you see one from Pompeii, I'm sorry, it's not very clear, and another um, one from uh, Mosaic from Le, uh, the Desenzano in Lake Garda, Northern Italy. But what they do show is actually Cupid's um, long strands, and it looks like they're weaving flowers together. So this was how I tried to do some experimental archaeology, and um, then also looking at images to see how they may have been held together on the head. So we have this mosaic of Dionysus and then a crown of Dionysus um, on a sculpture. And they are held on, his grapes are held on with some sort of band. And unfortunately, we do have actually a little bit of archaeological evidence from Egypt. And this is in the British Museum of a funerary wreath of um, uh, Helichrysum stoakis, which is uh, they're called Immortales. And this image is actually 2000 year old flower crown found in a burial. Um, and what's interesting is I didn't know about this until after I tried to figure out how to work out. I'm holding up one I made yesterday, but my way of figuring it out actually looks very similar to the Egyptian flower crown on how it ends, which is hard to see here, I know, but um, Basically, the way I wrap flowers together, the end, one side is much thicker than the other. So, and it's just the way you gather them. So I was quite pleased to see that. Um, but for me, the artistic side of this is working in this way. For, and for floral designers is I try to use everything that's very local because as I said, the floral industry is not good. So all the materials I use are either local or grown locally. Um, and which means I have to go outside and pick them myself. And it gets me um, in touch with the, the natural world. I've learned a lot about local vegetation and how it grows. It's very tactile, it's sensory. So it puts people in touch with nature. You can have something in your home or, or wear something. Um, and everything you make is unique. Uh, so that's 
the, the fun, the artistic side, but um, just some of the works I've made. Um, I tried to imitate the Corona Civica, which uh, is the honorary crown military generals would get if they had a great defeat or you know, performed well. And this one is made of oak and I've let that one dry for about four months now. So you can see they dry quite nicely. So it's a, a piece of art that's meant to be touched, worn, but then you can keep it. And a little history behind the Corona Civica is, I think it's the 12 tables in Latin where they say, if you've been honored a crown, you can keep it your whole life. And then they put it on your funerary pyre. So these things will last, but they have to, they last, they're very delicate. And uh, the other one is made of home oak which I did this summer um, because that's another. So oak and home oak were the two common materials that uh, Pliny and Alice Gallius mentioned for these crowns. And it's similar to what we see on the sculptures. But I'm also just then get quite creative with just trying to do garlands and wreaths, which Juvenal says in his satires you used over the homes of ha for houses um, where people just given birth. And this wreath here is one that again, there's no plastics. I don't use any plastics, any wires, tapes, anything like that. Everything is woven with, um, it's either woven the, the twigs together or woven using raffia, which imitates the palm fiber. Well, it is a palm fiber, but um, this is something the Romans might've used. And the wreaths are used using willow or vine and then just the stems are woven in and they do last surprisingly. <laughs> So this one was one this summer of just oak and um, dahlias and lavender, all which were from the area. And then one last Christmas I did where there was some olive and um, again, but you can just see right here, the, the base of the uh, wreath, which is vine. So you just wove in that, but the, I try to make these look Roman sometimes. And then again, I was just with this one, I was just trying to imitate a Roman um, garland and how they made of woven that. And this is for Christmas. So it's just gypsophilia, pine and eucalyptus. Again, unfortunately it was all grown in the local area, but you can see on the far end again, how if you weave it with the um, raffia, you always get that thicker end, which then you can cover with ribbon or whatever. But just a few more crowns I've made very quickly. This one is just, again, just so you can see with flowers. Um, but this, this is just trying to imitate what the Romans would have done. And also I think more <laughs> that I've done. One with local flowers I just grabbed from the beach. That, so in the, in the area where I was living in the UK, um, just again, playing around with different seasonal flowers. But they're also these, these um, they're not art and something that you would display on, on a wall. Well, you can, you can hang them, but they're very ephemeral. People buy these and then they throw them out. And that's another sad side of the floral business. But, um, but if you leave them to dry like this, it will actually, I'm sorry again, it's close up, but they, this is another one that's about five months old, but you can see the colors stay and they still smell, they have a, they take on this dried smell, but they start slowly decaying. But if you leave it carefully, they last for a very long, obviously 2000 years in some cases. So um, it's, it's just something I've started experimenting with and um, enjoying, but I think it's something that the 
floral designers could learn. It can help with the business, but also for us, if we buy them or use them or wear them or whatever, we can look at them differently as a form of its nature and where you, it's picked. So that's not very good. You're not taking it out of its natural environment, but people do this. So you can think about where you're getting this. It also reminds us that nature is very delicate, but if we handle it with care, like these wreaths, I know it's simplistic, but if we handle it with care with these wreaths, then in a way it can survive. So there are lots of ways we can engage with the natural world with this sort of, um, these sort of flower arrangements. So that's just generally me. If you want to have a look, as Jason said, I'm developing this business. I have been teaching people as well um, how to do this. And it always gets you know, students um, and just some women's groups and floral design groups where I've actually reached out. And you can see they all really enjoy it. And they enjoy it because it's tactile, sensory. And then they think about the flowers you're using them in different ways. And funnily enough, for people who know nothing about Roman history, who always think it's just politics, really enjoy this because I give them a little bit about the history of flower design and it gets them interested in a, a subject they never thought they would like. So it's another way of introducing classics to the public. So that's that's me. That is great to see all of us. Well, um, I have a feeling we could fill very much more than five minutes with, with questions now. Uh, let, I mean, maybe I could ask first of all, are there, whether there are, are, are there ideas in ancient culture of ideas of, for example, of sustainability or ideas about ephemerality, which you'd see as an inspiration for your own work, in, either in relation to wreaths in particular or more broadly in, in relation to gardens or other, other issues? Um, I mean, for my work on health, this is where I really get this idea of ephemerality or just at least being, I wouldn't say ephemerality, but an engagement with the natural world where what's healthy and, and how to, um, you know, whether you or not you want to live in a healthy space or, you know, what's a bad space to live in. And they do, when I start reading the letters of Pliny the Younger, for example, he does talk about the greenery around him and, and um, the flowers that he can smell. And it's, it's, again, it's not, I haven't come across anything on ephemerality. I'm sure there must be something, but but just their, their, the way they engage with nature is, um, is very much there. And I think we just have to look much further. So as everybody else is doing, so. Okay, we've got things coming into the chat. Thanks, Patty, that was really interesting. Two quick questions. Are you aware of, of any other examples of flowers or plants being worn on the body in the ancient period? And secondly, do we know if they had a similar practice of fresh cut floral displays in homes? Um, for the first one, yeah, we do have images of them wearing almost like lace, like you would in, um, in Hawaii or the Polynesia. There are some examples of that. Um, and there's one of a, actually a little donkey wearing one uh, with the images of the cupids. So, so there's some images of that. Uh, we have lots of imagery on um, things like the Arapacus or the Altar of Peace in Rome, which have swags. So they did decorate their house. As for if Bay's uh, pictures of vases and flowers and vases. I've never come across one, but you get a lot of images of the swags and the, and the garlands and the wreaths. So they may have been decorating with those. So. Do we know of professional florists from Rome or, or do we know anything at all about the people who actually made these? We do have one, that I think I forget, it escapes me right now, but the, I'll, I'll find the, the reference and then put it in the chat. But um, there is one, oh, it's a poet, 
who talks about a woman who is a floral weaver, you know, she weaves her flower crowns. And I will find the reference during the break and put it in the chat for everybody to see. So we do have, there were professional florists. Um, Pliny infers this when he's talking about, Pliny the Elder, when he's talking about the, the uses for flower crowns. You know, these are places where people can, um, they, they would go and buy um, flowers and also, um, uh, is it Vera Cato or Vera, Cato or Columella again, I'll have to check, also says if you're getting a farm and you're close to a city, a good cro crop to grow is flowers because you can bring those and sell them to the people who work with flowers. So, so they recognize this as a business. So they did have florists. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I mean, it'd be, it'd be wonderful to know. I'm thinking about the context of the use of wreaths and garlands in the symposium as well. It'd be wonderful to know how these things were sold as well, and, and also how much they cost as well as a parallel, I suppose, with the way in which ancient vases, were, the, 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 the economics of ancient vase, vases as well, were these kind of actually quite expensive prestige items in the symposium context, or, or actually quite ephemeral, ephemeral and easily available. I, yeah, yeah. It'd be wonderful to know. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I'll have to look into that one. So, yeah. Yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if I may say something, like I was uh, really struck by the helichrysum that was found in that tomb, right? It was a, it was a tomb, right, yes. right Patricia? So it's, uh, it's very interesting to see that, you know, there clearly was a very strong um, sensory element there because these flowers are still, even today, kept in the houses, at least in Italy. I'm not sure if it's done or elsewhere as well as a sort of um because they might they maintain they keep their, their 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 smell for a very long time and it's a very very characteristic very very rich smell they have so i there, there was definitely something going on there in that tomb sort of i mean these are flowers that are supposed to last forever and they actually did this time <laughs> they did last for two thousand years so there is definitely something there about the this, uh, this idea of keeping the the, the, the smell, the, the perfume of the of the flowers, even in the afterlife, really. Yeah, I, there's also stuff, um, things about wearing crowns for the smells if you have certain headaches, and um, I think also for hangovers as well. You know? <laughs> They're very good for drinking symposiums, so the two are combined. <laughs> Just wanted to jump in real fast too on that uh, quote you mentioned, uh, Patty. That that is Cato, by the way, just because I I know that from my own work, and those um those are being uh, grown yeah on suburban farms, so very close to the city, obviously because of transport, right? Um, you need to get those in fresh. So those were definitely a cash crop as well um, for the city and grown around Rome, and were definitely on plots of land that were very valuable and close to the city, given their um, the nature um, of the of the flowers themselves, but yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that. So thanks for bringing that up. Thank you. Thanks. Great. Okay. Well, I guess we better draw to a close there, reluctantly. Um, thank you again, Patsy. That was wonderful. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Antiquity and the Anthropocene. To access more podcasts from the workshop, check out the Humanities Institute's podcast channels on Apple, SoundCloud, and on Spotify.